Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. You know, there are a lot of things thrown out as quality and regulatory professionals in the medical device industry all the time. And on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews will share some of his habits of highly effective regulatory affairs professionals. So hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And today we're going to dive into something a little bit different, hopefully something fun. I know our guest, Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences, is really anxious to share some of these, these tips. But we're going to dive into some highly effective habits and tips for regulatory professionals. So Mike, are, are you ready to dive in? I'm ready, John. This is patterned off of one of my favorite books, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by one of my favorite authors, Stephen Covey. And, you know, John, I always try to under-promise and over-deliver. So why stick with just seven? Why not double that and add one to, to, for good measure? So let's go through these 15 uh, top, you know, most effective uh, habits for regulatory professionals. Yeah, and, and that, that book by uh, Stephen Covey is excellent, folks. So, uh, you know, if you haven't read it, you should, you should definitely give it a read. But uh, let's dive right in. So I think I'll start uh, with number 15, and this one's interesting. Um, this is a poker game in every sense. What do you mean by that, Mike? So, John, as I've uh, talked about many times, I characterize the entire relationship between the company and the FDA as a poker game in every sense of the word. And just because somebody understands the rules of poker, i.e. the regulation, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good poker player and certainly doesn't mean that they're going to win the game. I want to do everything that I can legal, of course. I don't want to be wearing any orange jumpsuits in order to win the game. So there's a heck of a lot more to this game than just reading and understanding the regulation. All right. That's that's, um, that's a good tip. So number 14, think globally. Uh, I mean, I can imagine what this means. I mean, obviously, we're in this world we're in today. It's, it's more than just the U.S. So expand a little bit about what you mean by think globally. That's exactly right, John. So uh, a common mistake that I see a lot of early stage companies, especially small and startup companies with limited resources, they don't consider what I can what I call international regulatory strategy early enough in the the process. In other words, it's very common for a company to bring a device onto the market in one place and then move on to a second place only to come to find that that second place wants a piece of information that the first place didn't want. And so now they have to do additional testing, in some cases uh, an additional uh, clinical trial, all over again in order to collect that additional information. Can you say ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching? It's a very common mistake. It's also a very rookie mistake. So my best advice, identify the first few places, maybe three or four places that you want to do business and pool their regulatory requirements so that all of the testing, benchtop, animal, clinical, what have you, will be enough to satisfy the needs of all of those places at once. Yeah, I, I echo that one in a big way. You know, a common practice is, you know, I'll, I'll talk to a company like, oh, well, we're interested in the U.S. market first, and you maybe in a year or so, we'll, we'll go down the path of EU. 
and that's that's fine if if that's the you know the strategy that that you um, deploy for for launching your product. But you know, do consider that downstream uh, market. You know, there might be something that that's needed from the EU perspective. That while you're going through this the first time uh, to get to get FDA clearance, it, it might be the right time. Uh, as far as cost, budget, timeline, things of that nature. So, so do think globally. I can echo that one in a big way. All right. Number 13, consider regulatory from the beginning. I mean, isn't this obvious? <laughs> well, perhaps it's obvious to you and I, John, but it's not obvious to an awful lot of people because one of the most common questions I get uh, from, from people is, how early in my product development life cycle should I start considering regulatory? And, of course, my short answer is, it's never too early. Even one nanosecond after you come up with the idea for the device is not too early to begin considering your regulatory. Now, John, as a regulatory consultant myself, obviously that sounds self-serving, but that's not really my intent here at all. Uh, the simple reality is um, there's so much that I can do to help a company through their, uh, as they go through their product development process, as they design their device. After all, my personal background before getting into regulatory, John, as you know, is, a, is in biomedical engineering, so I speak engineer. Um, there's a heck of a lot that I can do to help them as they design their device to minimize their regulatory burden later on, and also to avoid getting into problems later on. I suspect this is true on the quality side as well. You know, so many times a company will call me up and say they're, they're having a problem, they're in a hole, uh, can you help me get out of this hole? And I'll say, sure, I'll help you, happy to help you get out of this hole. But I also have to say that if you would have called me six months ago or 18 months ago, maybe you wouldn't be in this hole to begin with. So bottom yeah. line, consider regulatory early, very, very, uh, very early in the process. And also consider quality very early in the process as well. Yeah, Mike, that's, that reminds me, uh, um, we're covering the uh, habits of highly effective regulatory professionals in this episode. And, and uh, I think maybe something we can do in a future episode is to cover the highly uh, or habits of highly effective quality professionals. So um, I, I, I will make sure that, that considering uh, quality from the beginning is definitely going to be on that list. But from a regulatory perspective, it's really key because you have to know what that regulatory strategy is. And to the, to the point above, about thinking globally, I mean, that really will guide and direct you as to, you know, the path that you need to follow uh, to getting your product to the market. So starting it early, it's going to give you, you know, the, the most insights or, or the keep your eyes open to what's ahead of you so that, you know, you don't get several months into uh, an endeavor only to find out, you know, some twist or turn that you didn't consider from a regulatory perspective. So um, certainly echo that as well. Uh, number 12, don't reinvent the wheel. What do you, what do you mean by this? So that's another uh, great one, John. So this is in the general area of clinical trials, clinical data, and real-world evidence. And simply put, I see a lot of companies do clinical trials that, quite frankly, uh, are not justified. And just because FDA asks you to do a clinical trial doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it. So if you have a device already on the market, uh, and you're going back to the FDA, for example, for a label expansion to add a new indication on your label. If you have data, what we call um, real-world evidence or real-world data, that supports that particular indication, even though it might not be in a randomized clinical trial, even though it probably is off-label use, and in some cases, even though that data might not have originated here in the United States, but perhaps somewhere else in the world, 
it may likely be possible for you to use some or perhaps all of that data as part of your label expansion here in the United States. So bottom line, John, and this is applies not just to clinical data, but to everything, FDA can ask you to do anything they want. Doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it. So uh, if Good you're line. going to do, uh, if you're going to collect additional clinical data, uh, you know, make sure that it's justified. Now, one other thing I want to say, I'm not, you know, looking at for an excuse not to do a clinical trial because I don't want to spend the time or the money. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is if I have legitimate data that I can use, then why should I have to go out and collect uh, new data, um, you know, when I basically have a pile of data already? So bottom yeah. line, don't reinvent the wheel if you don't have to. Good point. All right. So item number 11 is competitive regulatory strategy. Talk a little bit about that. So this is another of my many favorite topics to talk about. So many companies, they'll develop their regulatory strategy to get their product onto the market by essentially following in somebody else's footsteps. And the problem with doing that, John, is that if you're following somebody else's footsteps, there's one thing I can guarantee, and that is you'll never go anywhere new. So if you're bringing a device onto the market, it may be possible for you to develop your regulatory strategy to make it more difficult for your competition to follow in your footsteps as well. This is an idea that I came up with a number of years ago. I coined the phrase competitive regulatory strategy, being able to make it more difficult for your competition to follow in your footsteps. And there's a litany of different ways that that can be done. Um, but that's the idea of competitive regulatory strategy. Yeah, and, and um, you know, when we, you and I have talked about that topic before, I, I almost liken it to... Um, uh, what a lot of companies do from an IP or from a patent perspective. I mean, a lot of companies will look at their uh, their patent portfolio in a competitive way for similar reasons. And, and there's no reason why you cannot use your regulatory strategy in a similar way. So that's uh, really good advice. All right. Uh, Absolutely. It's a, it's a good metaphor. Intellectual yeah. property is a good metaphor. Although, to be fair, um, the protection on uh, IP is stronger than it is, to, you know, for what well, I'm suggesting here. But nonetheless, sure. it's a good metaphor. Sure. Um, all right. So habit number 10, don't just copy others. So, yeah, again, I can't tell you, John, how many times people come to me. And uh, I'll share with you one case in particular. Somebody came to me and said, we're bringing our device onto the market as a 510K. And I said, okay, sure, no problem. Just out of curiosity, why are you doing it as a 510K? Well, did we have another option? It's amazing to me how many sheep we have in this industry, John. And I'm trying to be, uh, you know, kind here. Um, all most, you know, most people, of course, I'm generalizing. They just simply want to follow in somebody else's footsteps. They simply want to take the path of least resistance. And there's nothing wrong with that. If it's to my advantage to do that, then I'll be the first ones to do that. In fact, I'll be, uh, you know, put in 72 point font on my PowerPoint when I walk into FDA. I'm doing nothing more than what the people did before me. End of discussion. Don't let the door hit you and you know what on the way out. But if it's not to my advantage to follow in somebody else's footsteps, or if it's not po possible for me to do so, I'll be the first to work with the FDA come to, to, to carve out a new path. You know, as we've talked about before, John, the 510K is without a doubt the workhorse of the, the, the medical device industry here in the United States. But a lot of people think that the reason why the 510K is the most common choice is because it's the best choice, or in some cases, it's the only choice. And it's absolutely not the case. You know, McDonald's is one of the most successful restaurants in the world. Is it because they make a good hamburger? Not so much. 
So just because virtually everybody uses the 510K doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's the best and certainly doesn't necessarily mean that it's the only choice. All right, good advice. All right, so habit number nine, know all of your options. Yeah, again, this is related to what we just talked about, John. So uh, in, in, in order to really do your job, uh, as a regulatory professional or as a medical device developer, you really need to know all of the different options that you have in order to get your medical device onto the market here in the United States or elsewhere. Not just the vanilla flavored one, but all of the different options and the advantages and disadvantages of each. So one of the first things that I often do when I am uh, brought into a new project is to put together what I call a regulatory strategy executive summary. It's not a full-blown regulatory strategy, but it's a summary of the different options that the company has, the advantages and disadvantages to each, and to the extent that I can, the um, uh, an assessment of the regulatory burden and the regulatory risk of each one. In other words, if they take this particular path, this is what they're going to have to do in terms of testing. This is what they're going to, their regulatory risk or the probability of successfully getting it through the FDA. On the other hand, if we, we take a, a different path, then that's what they're going to have to do in terms of testing. That's what their regulatory risk is of successfully getting it through the FDA. And we discuss all of these options, and we determine which option is best for that particular um, uh, company. And one other thing I would add to that, John, is, and it's not on my list, maybe I should add a number 16, don't consider regulatory in isolation. Because we also have to bring into this our reimbursement strategy, our product liability strategy. You mentioned earlier IP, our intellectual property strategy. So we have to meld all of these different things together uh, in order to choose the best path moving forward for our particular organization, for our particular technology. All right. Moving right along, let's dive into habit number eight. Don't be myopic about risk. Yeah, again, John, this is another of my many favorite topics to talk about in the interest of full disclosure. As you and some in your audience know, I happen to be a subject matter expert for the FDA in a few different areas, one of them being risk. And I find, in a nutshell, all of the conventional approaches that we use to risk, all of the industry standards, to be very limiting at best. And believe me, as an engineer, I'm using very, very kind words. I think all of those are very, very limiting. So uh, I, I developed several years ago my own sort of approach. It's what I call my three-bucket approach to risk. We've done a webinar on this. You and I have done podcasts on this. Um, but, uh, but it is something that FDA is now uh, more recognizing. As a matter of fact, it's become now my standard approach. Uh, when I go to the FDA with a, a pre-sub or even a submission, um, but especially in a pre-sub, because I think it's a much more logical approach to risk than uh, than, than than some of the others. Um, simply put, there are aspects of risk that I think are very, very important to consider that are not even touched upon in some of the other approaches, like the ISO approach. And I think that's you know that's why I find those other um, approaches to be so limiting. No, that's a really good point. And, you know, folks, I, if, you, if you haven't heard the uh, webinar that we did on the Mike's um, approach to risk management, um, I would encourage you to go check that out. You can, you can watch that on demand from the Greenlight Guru website. Um, but um, it, it's a really, I'll say novel approach to it, but at the same time, it also 
um, once you hear, um, Mike, I'm, I mean, all respect for this comment, how simplistic it is. Uh, it's a very logical um, methodology that you can easily apply to what you're doing at your company. So, so um, I do encourage you to explore that. And I, I want to remind folks today, I'm talking to Mike Drews. Mike is with uh, Vascular Sciences and we're covering the 15 habits of highly effective regulatory professionals. So let's um, skip right back into the list. And number seven, new is not necessarily your friend. Well, so first, John, I have to say thank you for the compliment on the risk side. And I do take that as a compliment because Albert Einstein, very, very smart guy, much smarter than me. He said, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. So I, 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 I appreciate that you yeah, said my, my explanation was 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 uh, was simple. Anyway, so new is not necessarily your friend. Yeah, this is this is uh, habit number seven. Um, it's a real challenge when I go to the FDA to with a truly new, truly novel technology. And by the way, this is another one of those phrases that I think is very overly used. You know, somebody comes to me and says, "We're working on a new or novel device," and in about thirty seconds after describing it to me, I realize that. They're not working on anything new or novel. So several years ago, I developed a litmus test. Uh, if you think you're working on something new or novel, uh, ask yourself the following three questions. Is there regulation on it? Is there guidance on it? Is there reimbursement for it? Once again, is there, if you're working on something new or novel, ask yourself, is there regulation on it? Is there guidance on it? Is there reimbursement for it? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, then I hate to burst your bubble. You ain't working on anything new or novel, because at least in my book, you know, new or novel partly means uh, no regulation, no guidance, and no reimbursement. Now, when you take something like that to the FDA, as you can imagine, John, it's a real challenge because FDA is inherently—I um, don't want to say afraid, but inherently um, resistant or cautious about things that are truly new or novel, uh, for all of the obvious reasons. So, in order for FDA to, uh, in order for for me to make it a little easier for FDA to swallow that pill, so to speak, one of the first things I do, if I can, when go to, going to the FDA with something more novel, is to deconstruct the technology. In other words, yes, on one hand, this does appear to be new or novel, but if we pull it apart, you know, we find one component of this technology is being used over here, and another component of this technology is being used over there, and so on and so on. It makes it much easier for FDA to swallow that pill, and as a result, much easier for us to get that device onto the market. Yeah, and, and I think people fall in love with uh, wanting something to be new, uh, and and uh, I appreciate you know the desire for the thing that you're working on to to be new. Um, but my, you know, take Mike's advice on this. It's very important. Remember that part of your challenge as a medical device regulatory professional is you need to tell the story of your product. And to hit Mike's point about deconstructing and, and breaking down your device and your technology you know, into various chunks or pieces, if you will, uh, to, to share you know, what this piece is like and what this one is like and so on, um, is going to help better tell your story from a regulatory perspective. You know, to you know, heed Mike's uh, warning here, I don't know if he stated it as a warning, but, uh, you know, when you claim something is brand new, never been done before, it raises a lot of flag uh, flags with regulatory agencies like the FDA because, you know, new means something completely different to a regulatory agency and, and might require additional 
clinical studies, additional testing, uh, you know, additional things that you'll have to do to be able to corroborate why new is in fact okay. So just keep that in mind. Um, number six. And I would just add one yeah, quick thing to that, John. Looping back to risk we talked about a few moments ago, the same logic applies to risk. You know, as I said, as a subject matter expert for the FDA in the area of risk, I see companies frequently come into the agency with uh, what they think is a new technology. And when it comes to the risk assessment, they say, we don't know what the risks are because this is new. Nobody's done this before. Well, with all due respect, I think that's a cop-out. That's an excuse because rarely ever are, can you not deconstruct the risks as well. In other words, there might be risks uh, that are, you know, that that um, uh, that you have in your technology that are similar to some drastically different technology. I'm not talking about similar devices. I'm not even talking about similar areas of medicine. I'm talking about, you know, you might be using one device in cardiology, and somebody else might be, you know, might have another device in, you know, OBGYN or something like that. But there might be aspects of risks that are similar between the two. So one of the things that I try to get people to do, John, is to look for similarities where no similarities seem to exist. Whether we're talking about technology, whether we're talking about risk, whether we're talking about regulation, it's all the same thinking. All right. So let me pose a question um, at the risk of it, it may, I'm not trying to derail or uh, go into the list of the, the habits of highly effective regulatory professionals, but you, you said something that triggered a thought. Um, so what if, I mean, could I evaluate some sort of technology that's out of the outside the medical device um, space, you know, as far as like risk or technology and that sort of thing, it, is, is there any credence or, or value in, in using um, non-medical device technologies uh, when looking at something, you know, that I think is new when I deconstruct or look, even looking at risk? Is there any credence to doing so? Uh, it's a wonderful question, John. And my very short answer is yes. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that if we did not do that, we would not be doing our jobs. We would, you know, that would be borderline, you know, professional incompetence. And I'll give you a perfect example. I have several devices that I'm working on right now that use ultraviolet or UV light to do something, maybe, uh, you know, kill, kill bugs or something like that. Well, there are a litany of technologies that are not regulated by the FDA that use the same technology to do the same thing. And so even though those are not regulated by, medical, by FDA as, as regulated medical devices, I will still use that information as part of my, my uh, regulatory due diligence, if you will. So the short answer, John, is absolutely yes, we can and we should uh, use information from all sources, including non-regulated medical devices sources, in order to do whatever it is that we're trying to do. All right. Uh, number six, use label expansions to your advantage. So again, John, this is a, a topic that you and I have talked about many times. Uh, there are a range of options that companies can bring, uh, can use to bring their device on the market all the way through on the one end of the spectrum. We have things like wellness devices that don't require anything from the FDA through uh, the other end of the spectrum, which would be the, the PMA or the HDE, which would require a lot of regulation. Now, it's tempting for me as an engineer to want to bring a device onto the market with all the bells and whistles that I possibly can. But the problem is uh, that if I do that, I have a higher likelihood of being unsuccessful. Here's the metaphor that I often like to use, John, for those in the audience that are into baseball. It's the difference between swinging for a single versus swinging for a home run. 
everything else being equal, I would love to swing for a home run. But the problem is when you swing for a home run, in other words, getting all of the bells and whistles in your device the first time out of the box, you have a higher likelihood of striking out. And in this very risk-averse industry that we've evolved into, many companies don't want to take that risk. So I say, okay, fine. You don't want to swing for a home run? No problem. Swing for a single. Get the base hit. The batter moves to first. The next batter comes up. They get a base hit. The runner moves from first to second and so on. At the end of the day, you end up at the same place. You get the, the runners all the way around the bases. It's a matter of do you do it all at once? i.e. a home run, or do you do it as a series of, of singles or base hits? Of course, there are advantages and disadvantages to both of those scenarios. But, um, you know, simply put, the label expansion idea, and this is, you know, in the regulatory world, what I just described is, is doing a series of label expansions, very, very common in the drug world. Not quite as common in the device world, although I do it myself all the time. It's a great way to get truly new, truly novel technologies, not not just simply me too products onto the market through a regulatory structure that let's just be honest, John is not intended. It is not designed to support them. Really good advice. All right. So keeping with the theme of label habit, number five, design your label like you design your device. Yeah. Once again, John, I find it interesting that a lot of companies obviously spend a lot of time and money designing their device, but when it comes to their labeling, they spend very, very little time, if, it, if any, uh, designing their label. As a matter of fact, uh, in the 510K world, it's to your advantage to choose a label that's you know as close as possible to your competitors. But as we've talked about before, you don't have to do that, John. So long story short, as, a, as an engineer, to me, design is design. Whether I'm designing a physical widget, whether I'm designing a clinical trial, whether I'm designing a regulatory strategy, or in this case, whether I'm designing a label, to me, design is design, and I want to use all of the tools, all of the tips and tricks that I can in order to, uh, you know, do the best job of getting, getting my message across, getting done what I need to get done. So that's the idea of designing your label like, like you design your device. Yeah, and, and again, this is um, John Spear, and we're talking with Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences. And one of the things that, you know, just to echo what Mike's saying about this, you know, don't, don't treat your label as an afterthought. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot at Greenlight Guru about the importance of design controls. In fact, um, within our EQMS software platform that's designed uh, exclusively for medical device professionals, we, we have a design control workflow. And it's important to, uh, you know, in, include the, the label as part of that design control process, you know, making sure you understand user needs and the design input requirements and, and things of that nature. I mean, there's a lot of information that gets crammed into a label. Uh, some of it is, you know, of course, driven by uh, the, the current regulatory needs, things like UDI and things of that nature. But there's a lot of valuable information for that healthcare professional that, that needs to be on the label and the instructions for use and that sort of thing. Um, so spend the necessary time to make sure that, that you've, you know, you're not doing this as an afterthought. That you're not trying to cram this in at the last moment. Uh, it's, it is as important as any other part of that medical device. And if you'd like to learn more about how Greenlight uh, might be able to help you manage your design control process, I would highly encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru uh, to find out more information and, and certainly request a demo if that's something you're interested in. All right. So um, how about number four, Mike? No submission should ever be rejected. 
So speaking of uh, uh, baseball, John, we're in the bottom of the ninth, you know, so uh, so we're coming to the end here. We've only got a few more uh, habits to talk about. No submission should ever be rejected. Absolutely true. You know, when you look at the statistics across our industry, John, quite frankly, they're abysmal. You know, something like three quarters of 510Ks are rejected by the FDA first time out of the box. And uh, in the PMA world, it's even worse. About 89% of PMAs are rejected first time out of the box. Again, I think that's embarrassing as an industry. Uh, we have devolved, not evolved, but devolved to the point where we're really treating the FDA as our elementary school teacher. Here's my homework assignment. Will you please mark it up and give it back to me? And I'm sorry, John, maybe I'm getting a little old, but that is not the way this game is supposed to be played. So I think the vast majority of these delays or rejections can be uh, can be minimized, if not totally eliminated, by communicating with the agency in advance. Uh, and that's the theme of the last few few tips here. So yeah, um, when a, I, I have said publicly many times uh, that no 510k submission should ever be rejected because it's not substantially equivalent. That is such an amateur mistake. I mean, with all due respect to my regulatory firms. Those regulatory folks probably shouldn't have the jobs that they have if they're making those kinds of, of mistakes. That's just a, a huge problem. We can do better. Well, and, and I think, I know you've used the baseball analogy today, and, and folks, uh, you know, a good hitter in baseball is, is going to get a, a base hit three out of 10 times. Um, hopefully that's not your track record as a regulatory professional. It should, it should be quite, <laughs> quite different than, than 30%. So, um, yeah, but it is, it is, um, there's a lot of rejections of five, 10 Ks. I think the latest statistic on that is some, something like three out of four, five, 10 Ks are getting rejected or something like that. Right, Mike? That's correct. And, and when it comes specifically to substantial equivalence, it's even higher than that. So that's crazy. 85% of uh, 510Ks are, that are rejected are rejected specifically because of substantial equivalence. You know, again, John, this is another of the many topics you and I have talked about before. Substantial equivalence, which is the crux of the 510K. So many people think that it's such a simple thing, but what the heck does it really mean? It's not nearly as simple as a lot of people think. All right. So um, you, you hinted at this a moment ago, but let's dive into habit number three, communicate early and often with FDA. Absolutely. You know, there is, as, as you and many in your audience, John, know, uh, there is no bigger fan of communication with the agency than I am. I will communicate much more frequently with the agency than any regulation would ever require me to do. But, John, there's a big caveat to that. As someone who works as a consultant for the FDA myself, I get the uh, uncommon opportunity to sit on both sides of this uh, proverbial fence, so to speak. And it amazes me, John absolutely amazes me how many companies come into the agency and essentially ask them, what do we do? How do we bring our device onto the market? What's our regulatory strategy? What kind of testing do we have to do? Do we have to do a clinical trial? And in my not so humble opinion, John, that's a terrible strategy for several reasons. And I'll only just mention two of them here. First of all, it's not FDA's job to tell us what's what's to do. It's our job to figure out what to do, what makes sense from a biology and an engineering perspective, and then to take it to the FDA and sell it to them. But the second reason why I think this is a terrible strategy is because you're opening up a Pandora's box and you have no idea what you're going to get in return. So if you go to the agency and you say, do we need to do a clinical trial on our new device? What do you think they're going to say? Of course, you got to do a clinical trial and you got to use 500 million people. 
right? I mean, what else are they going to say? So on one hand, there's no bigger proponent of communication with the agency than I am. But on the other hand, there's my big caveat, and this has become one of my regulatory mantra, and that is tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. In other words, go into the agency and say, here's our device. This is what it does. This is the way that it works. We're bringing it onto the market as a 510K, and here's why, or a de novo, and here's why, or a PMA, and here's why. Here's the testing that we're doing. By the way, I also justify what I'm not doing. So here's the testing that I'm not doing. I will also uh, justify either why I'm not going to do a clinical trial, or if I am going to do a clinical trial, why the trial is designed the way it is. In other words, I want to take away every possible opportunity that I have for the agency to, to, to disagree with me. So go in there and be quite you know, confident and maybe even a little bold and tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. Communication is a wonderful thing, but it's important to remember at the end of the day who's in charge. Yeah. All right. So getting down to the last couple, I feel like we should be uh, um, approaching a drum roll here in a moment. Um, but anyway, number two habit is <laughs> don't treat FDA or frankly any regulatory agency as your enemy. Yeah, again, regrettably, John, I see a lot of people approach the uh, the FDA with the attitude, what's the minimum that I have to do in order to get you to sign off on whatever it is that I want you to sign off on? And I'm just so troubled by that approach for so many reasons. As a matter of fact, many of my reviewer friends and some of the uh, reviewers that I work with at FDA I've been friends with for decades since we were in graduate school together, they have told me privately they would never admit this in public, I'm sure. But if you have people coming to you with that kind of an attitude every week, even every day, you might get a little skeptical. You might even get a little cynical, right? So I work really hard to try to break down that, that stereotype. So don't treat the enemy, the FDA, like your enemy. And along with that, John, don't treat the FDA as your beta tester. It amazes to me, John, how many companies, the first people outside of their own organization to see their submission is the FDA. And in my opinion, that's a huge mistake. Um, one of the things that I do with a lot of the companies that I work with, I'm not trying to make this self-serving, I'm just trying to share some of my best practices, is um, uh, to, before the company goes down to White Oak to sell FDA, whatever it is that they're trying to sell them, they'll ask me to come in to temporarily put my FDA reviewer head on to sit to, to read through their submission and to sit through their presentation. And if I can be a bit brash here, you know, bash the hell out of it. Because the idea is if they're going to make a mistake, Better for them to make a mistake in front of me. After all, you know, what do I count? You know, I don't matter, as opposed to down in White Oak when, uh, uh, where it really matters. And for those, you know, like you, John, who are familiar with quality and the design controls, this idea should sound absolutely not new to you. This is right out of the design controls. It's the concept of the independent reviewer. Only what I'm describing here is not in an engineering sense, but in a regulatory sense. So don't treat the FDA as your enemy and don't treat them as your beta tester either. Really good advice. And, um, you know, it's, it's folks, I mean, <laughs> I mean, FDA and other regulatory agencies, they're, I hate to use the term gatekeeper, but in many respects they are. And, uh, you know, if, if you come to that gate and, uh, you, you'll haven't, you know, earned, uh, I'll use air quotes around the word earned that opportunity to pass through for whatever reason, it's going to be difficult for you. So realize that you know FDA is a partner uh, with you and, and other regulatory agencies, they are a partner with you uh, to get your product to the market. So uh, treat them as you would any other good partner. 
All right. So um, without further ado, let's let's unveil the the number one habit of highly effective regulatory professionals, and that is number one: don't be the regulatory police. Yeah, John. As I get older, you know, I've been playing this game now for over twenty five years. It, it, let's be honest: in so many organizations and so many companies, the regulatory and perhaps the quality folks as well, they're viewed as the police because they're constantly telling R&D and manufacturing and other areas what they cannot do. And I'm sorry, John, I do not take that approach. I pride myself on telling the company what they can do. In other words, when a company comes to me and says they have this really cool, or what we would say here in Boston, wicked cool technology, uh, I want to be able to come up with at least one, usually multiple ways for them to get onto the market here in the U.S. or whatever part of the world that uh, that they're looking to do business. So. Don't be like the regulatory police. Don't be telling people what they cannot do. Uh, focus on what you can do. And similarly, don't let regulation hold you back. You know, regrettably, I hear a lot of companies making excuses. Well, you know, FDA is being too burdensome and, you know, it's too difficult for us to jump through these hoops. In some cases, that might be true. But nonetheless, you have to work together to come to a compromise because, quite frankly, John, if everybody felt that way, we'd still be living in caves. Regulation, and it pains me to say this, regulation has become a convenient excuse not to simply justify what we do, but also what we don't do. One of the cool things about my job, John, is I get to walk into lots of different kinds of companies, and I see what people are doing. They're doing some testing, for example, in R&D or manufacturing, and one of my favorite questions to ask them is, why are you doing this particular test? And oftentimes they'll say to me, well, because FDA requires us to do it. I said, okay, fine. If FDA didn't require you to do it, would you do it? Absolutely not. It provides no useful information. On the other hand, I walk into that same company and I'll see that they're not doing a particular test that I, as a professional biomedical engineer, think they should be doing. And I'll ask them, why are you not doing it? They say, because nobody requires us to do it. So regrettably, John, and again, as a proud professional working in this industry for a long time, I take no joy in saying this. But regulation has become a convenient excuse for a lot of people, certainly not everybody, but for a lot of people to hide behind. And it's about time that we put an end to that. Yeah, and I, I, I love that. And it's a good one to, to wrap up on. And, and folks, you know, um, I think for regulatory professionals, this is, this is my opinion um, based on current state of, of the industry and, and observations over many, many years. You know, regulatory professionals that you have an opportunity to really lead your organizations uh, into, you know, kind of a, a new paradigm, if you will, uh, not to sound all cliche, um, but, um, but you know, now more than ever, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of confusion uh, on regulations and how and what to do and when to do it and that sort of thing. And if, um, and if you're coming to the other resources within your company you know, carrying your internal regulatory badge, if you will, um, it's not going to be very well received. I mean, you you have an opportunity, you have a responsibility, maybe even, to to help explain, um, you know, the the current regulatory uh, structure that that we operate in in the medical device industry. And so, you have an awesome opportunity to really lead your organizations uh, to be those best of breed companies who you know have uh, leveraged and used. Uh, regulatory uh, and in a really meaningful um, 
way that, that will help grow your businesses. So I, I would encourage you to embrace this, not resist this. So, Mike. Um, I could not agree more, John. And yeah. just to end my part, because sure. we need to wrap this up, if I can just share a short story to, I think, illustrate what you just described. And I know I've shared this with some of your audience in the past, but perhaps one of the most common questions that I get from companies, I get this question every week, sometimes even every day. Mike, you work with lots of different medical device companies. You also work for the FDA. If we if, if we came to the FDA with our new widget, what do you think FDA would want to see in terms of benchtop animal clinical uh, usability testing, what have you? And I say to them, look, I understand why you're asking me that question. I understand why it's an important question to you, but let's approach this from a totally different perspective. Let's pretend for a moment that the FDA did not exist. Let's take them completely up out of the equation. Sooner or later, a family member, a friend, perhaps even yourself, is going to be on the receiving end of your medical device. When that day occurs, what will it take for you as an individual, John, or for me, Mike, or for somebody else, to put our personal stamp of endorsements, if, if you will, to say that that's okay to use in our spouse, in our child, in my case, you know, my almost three-year-old grandson, or even in, our, in, a, in ourselves. When then and only then, should we go to the agency, FDA, or whatever regulatory authority and have an intelligent conversation as to what's necessary to bring this product onto the market? I'm a huge fan of doing what makes sense, what makes sense from a biology and an engineering perspective, not simply following regulation like a recipe. That's another thing that far too many people do, and uh, I think it's a problem. But anyway, uh, thank you very much, John, for the opportunity oh, to have welcome. discussion. I know that uh, we, we covered a lot of information. And I would just mention, you know, for the people in the audience that are relatively new, many, if not most of the topics that John and I, I talked about today, we have done in other podcasts or webinars in much more detail. So this was meant just simply to be sort of a, a high level, you know, a shotgun. We, we, we went through these 15 topics as, as quickly as possibly could, we could. This was not an exhaustive list, you know, with a little more effort. I think John and I could have come up with a list of 30 or more, but this is a good place to start. So thanks, John, for the opportunity yeah. to have this. Uh, it's, it's my pleasure. And, and folks, I mean, Mike is, is correct. I mean, you can almost use these 15 habits of highly effective regulatory professionals as, as um, a checklist of sorts, to, you know, so that you, you know, can evaluate wh where do you need to, to strengthen your, your, uh, your regulatory knowledge or your, your regulatory skill set. And certainly if you have additional questions or, or comments about this, feel free to re reach out to Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. Uh, you can find him all over the World Wide Web today. Certainly uh, an active participant on a number of different medical device industry publications as well as LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out. And of course, folks, if, if you want to build a strong quality uh, foundation for your medical device company to support your competitive regulatory strategy and documentation around design and risk and so on, I would very much encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about the Greenlight Guru EQMS software platform. As always, this is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.